0: Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a special guest with me today, Bonnie Christian, who is a journalist who writes opinion pieces on foreign policy, religion, electoral politics, and more. Her column, The Lesser Kingdom, appears in print and online at Christianity Today. She is a fellow at Defense Priorities, a foreign policy think tank, and her work has been published at outlets including the New York Times, The Week, USA Today, CNN, Politico, Reason, and the Daily Beast. Bonnie is the author of A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today, and Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Bonnie, thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: I got an alert months ago that you were publishing this book, and I had read your previous book, and I was like, oh, wow, this is like directly related to some of the topics that I have been concerned with that is sort of puzzling a lot of Christians and, and libertarians. And it it appears that you have a similar mindset about the way in which we need to, you know, deal with social media, news, and so forth. And you are also a journalist. So you're very much in that realm and you're very attuned to what's happening there. And so it just felt like you're like probably the best person to talk to about this. And you know, you start off your book. That there's this crisis that's breaking our brains. And I'm going to quote it here, the first page. This may be the most pressing and unprecedented challenge of discipleship in the American church. So that's a pretty strong statement to start off with. Of course, it kept me reading the book (laughs) because I'm like, well, okay, this is super important to you, of course. And as you're, you know, from where you're sitting, you know, it's worth writing about. So what exactly is this crisis? Like, how exactly do you define what's happening?
1: Yeah. Well, so I think, oh man, it's a big crisis and it's difficult to explain a lot of times my temptation when I'm talking about people say what's your new book about the temptation is to say like oh it's about misinformation because everybody sort of has a sense of what Mm. that means and that's sort of like a buzzy word. But it's really not so much about the information and the quality of the information, although that's part of it, but it's much more about us as like consumers of that information. It's more about us as knowers than it is about the knowledge if that distinction makes sense. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so it's about that sense of unease or, or uncertainty that I think a lot of us feel when we're consuming, especially political media, be that online or watching the news or listening to the radio or whatever your preferred format may be, that sense of uncertainty around like, okay, is, is this real? Can I trust this? How do I know what is trustworthy and what isn't? And you know, I don't think it's too strong, especially on on the national scale. Obviously, things are going to vary in our in our individual lives, but I don't think it's too strong on the national scale to speak about that as a crisis,
0: yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that I believe has sort of been exacerbated by covid and by lockdowns and everybody sort of you know things getting politicized. Do you think that's true and I'm guessing you probably are going to say that it, it goes before COVID because, you know, we've had social media for much longer than the last two to three years.
1: Yeah, it definitely predates COVID. I do think, though, that a lot of us spent more time consuming political media during those years, whether, you know, in some cases, that was because people were were living under like lockdown rules. That varied mm-hmm. a lot, though, across the country. And in some cases, I think it was just, you know, this is a really major political event that we want updates on, right? And so one way or another, I think a lot of us spent a lot more time, devoted a lot more of our attention to consuming media. And we were also, Mm -hmm. in many cases, spending a lot less time and attention doing like normal, better things of, you know, hanging out with people, going to church groups, like just normal stuff that under other circumstances would help combat it. So yeah, I don't think COVID at all started this, but I do think that it, in many cases, contributed to it.
0: Do you think it predates social media?
1: Yeah, I do think so. I think that a lot of what I have in mind certainly dates to like the start of cable news as that 24 hour model, that idea that, and you know, that goes to the 1990s, that idea that we're going to have news coming at us all day, every day, and the news isn't just confined to that hour or two hours in the evening where you sit down and you watch the news and then it's over, right? Yeah, so great. I think you could point to that, and I don't go back this far in the book, really. But I think you could even make a case that we're still kind of in the early years of television itself, and so just the idea of screened media as a major way in which we're consuming information is still, in the grand scheme of things, pretty new. So I I would mostly look at like the last thirty years, cable news, and then the rise of the internet, and then the rise of social media, but. Television, too, was a major escalation of how much information was coming to us on a daily basis.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there's going to be a handful of things we'll talk about here. And I think a lot of people think that, like, the problem is with other people. Like, we're going to probably talk (laughs) about fake news, conspiracy theories, cancel culture, the mob mentality. And one thing that I loved about your book was that it talks about the concern you have for Christians becoming... Enamored with either the, I don't know if you say it specifically this way, but the tribalism and politicizing, you know, the way they think about everything and the way they talk to everybody and the way they can obsess about, you know, conspiracy theories and the plan and all kinds of stuff, right? But there's a concern that you have for Christians with respect to this problem that isn't just a Christian problem. It's not like we're talking about a scandal in the church or anything like that. This is a societal thing. Why should Christians in particular be concerned about these things?
1: Yeah, well, so I, I think I say this in the book, but it's something that I encountered over and over again, even before I started this as a book project, when I was just sort of writing about these topics in my journalism work, over and over again, both in interviews I did and in like in the wild on social media and in other people's news reports, other people's interviews, I came across pastors describing this as a discipleship problem and kind of one that had snuck up on them in a lot of cases. And mm. the thing that they would say again and again, was you know I get people for an hour or two on Sunday, and then CNN or Fox News or Facebook or Twitter or whatever gets them for 20, you know, 15, 20, 30 hours a week. And I can't compete with that. And so Christians are not unique in those media habits. But in theory, our lives, our use of our time should be different. We should be yeah. somewhat unique in this regard. And I think that increasingly we're not. And so my impression, and obviously this is very anecdotal, but my impression is that a lot of pastors are coming to realize the situation they have on their hands. But as I said, in some cases, it was sort of like hit them as a, as a surprise. It is in some regards, as much as I'm saying like 30 years back or even longer, it is in some regards quite new, at least as something that we're aware of that it's a problem and also aware that it is connected so closely to discipleship.
0: This is maybe a slight tangent but it does seem to me that there's a lot of lag in I don't want to blame this on pastors but like just generally Christian ministers to other people which could you know venture into nonprofits and all that that there seems to be in my mind a sort of lag between dealing with the problems that arise and like sort of realizing oh wow we've got a problem here and I think you and I are not too far off in our generational situation that we grew up in similar circumstances where the internet was coming of age. And I think there was a lot of fear earlier on, but then that kind of went away pretty quickly. But I don't think a lot of people were thinking about, well, how is this changing our habits and our behaviors in a way that will eventually yield distrust and Like they would maybe not even just distrust, but like would even draw the attention away from community in the way that we were used to, say, pre-90s, right? And so it just seems to me that there are a lot of delays in church leadership, per se, that it appears that they're just ending up dealing with the symptoms rather than some of the, the older habits that need to be sort of reinstated, which I'd want to talk about here near the end of the episode. But do you feel like that's your experience as well?
1: I do feel a sense of delay. I'm hesitant to say like, is the delay unique to Christians? Like, are we more delayed than sort of the broader society? Because, mm. you know, thinking back to like the early days of the internet, the concern was very much about like, stranger danger, like someone going to lure your kid to a parking mm. lot and kidnap them after like catfishing them in a chat room and pornography. And, you know, that was certainly the big concerns among Christians. And I think that was also especially the kidnapping scenario. I think that was like a more widespread thing as well. And then when social media first started, of course, there was that real optimism about it. Like this is going to make us more informed citizens. We're going to do better democracy. Like we're going to all have a voice. It's going to be so great. Mm -hmm. We're going to make more friends, meet more people. I think there was even a lot of optimism within the church of like, this is going to facilitate our community life instead of distract from it. And so. Yeah, I do think that we have come to this realization later than we should have. I don't know though that there's, I mean, you know, you have people who do this stuff for a living. People like Jonathan Haidt have been talking about the risks of social media for a few years now, perhaps a few years before. People in the church got to it. But on the other hand, you know, I, I don't know, I kind of feel bad for pastors dealing with this right now, especially if you've been in ministry for 10 plus years. None of this would have been addressed in seminary. It just mm. was not on the radar back then, you know? And so part of the reason why in that opening chapter, as you mentioned, I discussed it as an unprecedented crisis for discipleship is that most things that pastors are dealing with, people are pretty much the same as they've always been. You know, we have the same sins. We have the same foibles. We have the same like messy interpersonal dynamics. But this and the way that it claims our attention, I think is legitimately new.
0: What are some of the signs of this crisis? And maybe you can describe some of its characteristics. Like as you look out, I mean, we can talk very vaguely. We've been doing that for like the last 10 minutes. And like, so what are the things that you're seeing that are particularly troubling? Like what are, like I said, the characteristics?
1: Yeah. Well, at a, Personal level, a lot of it, as I've already alluded to, is about like time use, the way that we spend so much of our time and attention wading through like this endless stream of information of very mixed quality without really the time or the inclination to assess, is what I'm reading true? Should I be reading this? Like, is this worth my time? Because we have at any moment in our pockets. You know, you're waiting in line at the grocery store for two minutes before you can put your food on the line. You can pull your phone out and start scrolling through some social media feed and read 50 different things like that. that it makes sheer... It makes
0: rush hour a lot less stressful.
1: <laughs> that sheer quantity of just information coming at us and the sheer quantity of time that we spend, like blasting that in our faces, I think that's a big part of it. But I also think it's, you know, there's also like the production side of it, if you will, right? Like, there are ongoing like pressures and debates within the media that, like, you know, the media is not a perfect industry. I think I probably am a little bit more sympathetic to my fellow journalists than maybe like the average news consumer in America. But there are like real internal debates in the industry and real pressures, especially around how do we make money in in a world where we cannot use the old advertising models of the pre-internet age? And so, you know, there are on that side of things, there are concrete problems that are making it difficult to put out trustworthy information in a timely manner. And then there's this interplay, right, of one of the most striking statistics that I remember from when I was researching the book was that in the last few years Americans have said that they find the media less trustworthy but they're consuming more of it and i think that really encapsulates where we are which is just wading into all of this confusion you know not not with a, a strong regard for truth but just looking for information that feeds our tribalism and gets us excited and gets us angry and fearful, gives us something to fight about, gives us a reason to go after people, gives us Mm -hmm. a reason to be dismissive of people we dislike. And so it's a combination of, you know, there are real problems on the quality of the information, but also real problems in how we're behaving as we consume it and the sheer amount of time that we're spending consuming it.
0: So you tell a story earlier on about yard signs in your neighborhood. And it seems to be a good story you might want to recount a little bit here on how this has affected people in the real world. Like it used to be where the people you meet online were like these foreign strangers and like, and I don't mean that, that's sort of a weird way of saying it, but like you meet people online, it's like, oh, hey, cool. But like you don't really interact with them in the real world, but somehow this is affecting how we interact with people in the real world, including maybe even our actual literal neighbors.
1: Yeah, so this was, And it began this yardside story as an article I reported when I was working at The Week in 2020. And so I lived in the Twin Cities at the time, a very deep blue neighborhood, something like 97% Democratic. And it was really interesting. So it was an election year, but the yard signs that people were putting up were generally not about the election or not directly about the election. The most popular one was that in this house, we believe, sign that I'm sure everyone's seen, Mm -hmm. you know, with the rainbow list of affirmations about women and and Black Lives Matter and science is real and so on and so forth. And it got to the point where you almost couldn't go down a block without seeing Mm -hmm. one of these signs. And it was less so in our immediate, it wasn't quite as, as prolific in our immediate neighborhood, which had actually more immigrants and like working class people of color. But if you went into the adjoining neighborhood, and there was not like a super bright line between the two, where it was more white middle class folks, it was just every single block, sign, sign, sign all the time. And so I was really curious about this because, you know, I am obviously very interested in politics, but I would never put up any political yard sign in my yard under any circumstances. And so I was curious to know, like, what was motivating people to want to do that? And so I interviewed some people who had the signs up. And their responses were super fascinating. So like one woman told me that it was a way to, quote, identify ourselves as friendly and safe. And she told me a story about one time she somebody was walking past her house and pointed to her sign and said to the person they were walking with, like, this neighborhood is nice people. And like, that's how you know it. And it got to the point with one of the people <laughs> I interviewed that she said that she wouldn't Really want to welcome anyone to her home who didn't agree with the sign. Because I asked a question to the effect of, you know, like if you have family or friends who disagree with that, does that cause conflict or something? I don't remember the exact details. But her whole thing was like, well, you know, anybody who's coming to my house, I would like them to agree with my sign. And so (laughs) I just found that so interesting. Because for me, like being aware that most of my neighbors probably had different politics than I did. Like the last thing I would want to do is put out a sign that basically announced my disagreements with my close neighbors whom I, you know, want to be friendly with and interact with and, and be at block parties with them. Right. And so I think part of the difference was that, you know, she was confident that most of her neighbors probably did agree with it. But also I think she wanted to make that statement and stake out that disagreement if there were people who who didn't agree And it just struck me as as you mentioned, like it was a very much like bringing our online signaling and our online political behavior into real life. You know, there used to be these strong norms against talking about religion and politics in person because it became awkward, and you know, you don't want to offend people or whatever.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: online those norms fell away, and now it seems like that lack of a prohibition is bleeding out into real life so much so that we're willing to. Put a permanent, like fixture in our yard to announce our politics to everyone who comes by our house.
0: Yeah, I'm not a yard sign person either. I've had only one yard sign ever in my yard, and we were relatively new in our neighborhood. And I wasn't aware that you know most people didn't do that. Although there were a handful mm-hmm. of people, and it was a Ron Paul 2012 uh, <laughs> sign, <laughs> which back then, like I don't know if a whole lot of people do that. It, you know, in my neighborhood. Here, it would be they more like, know who it you know, was, yeah. they might know, but it was more like, oh, you're you're a third party person, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're a free thinker is sort of the ethos I wanted them to have of us and that kind of thing. So, but yeah, I'm not really a yard sign person, but like, man, can you imagine like what a libertarian yard sign would look like? And if you want to think pluralistically, it would be things like, we believe that in this house we believe that disagreement is healthy and <laughs> and that truth you know i think you mentioned about like truth comes from a multiple of angles you know we come to the truth from a multiple of angles and <laughs> all kinds of other things that honestly i think that might actually work if it was crafted well but i guess people like you and me aren't going to actually do it so <laughs> maybe there's somebody out there who will maybe i want to talk about media trust because you know as a journalist you said you're a little bit sympathetic to the plight of people trying to do well in, in the media. Mm-hmm. You kind of mentioned the shift, you know, that we now have essentially a 24-hour news cycle that was started by, you know, CNN or Headline News or whatever, and that, you know, cable news channels in the 90s. The distrust in media, when people are asked that question, and I don't know how, you know, it's hard to discern what exactly people are thinking of. Because you know when you said that people are consuming more, even while they're increasingly saying we distrust it more, I'm thinking, well, they're probably thinking, well, I only trust the media that I consume. And the media that I don't consume is inherently distrustworthy. And it does seem that, especially on the libertarian and even conservative side of things, that there is an inherent or a growing distrust in corporate media or the traditional media like the New York Times or even sort of the... We can even include Fox on this because mm-hmm. even though conservatives tend to favor Fox that they don't like the major news channels because there's this inherent bias. What is your take on why people are distrustful and um, yeah. you know we can get into some of the possibilities of you know whether or not they're accurate and they have good reason to be
1: yeah, well, so the polling on this suggests that the overwhelming reason that people think the media is untrustworthy is that journalists are deliberately deceiving their audience and that they're doing it for political reasons, which you do have sort of a left-wing version of this where there's skepticism of the corporate media because they're serving big business. But the most common Mm. version of this is, you know, distrusting the mainstream media because they're all liberals and they're lying to you to help the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, having been a journalist, having been in, especially, so I spent seven years at theweek.com and we also have a magazine. You know, the great bulk of our newsroom was sort of like who you would expect to be in media, like young progressives. And having been in that newsroom, we took real care to not do exactly what people think is happening. Like journalists have flaws and there are a lot of critiques, including critiques that I make in the book. There are a lot of fair critiques to be made of traditional media. But this idea that your average journalist is out there deliberately telling lies so that more Democrats will win elections. It is simply not true. It's just not true. Mm. You know, the, the industry is having internal debates about like what objectivity is and whether that should be our overwhelming value in the way that you think about like sort of the classic 1950s objective journalism, whether that should still be the model. And that debate, unfortunately, because of the The nature of the industry and the nature of social media. Now that debate plays out in public. And so it's very messy and people see what once would have been sort of an internal conversation among colleagues about best practices. Now it all Mm -hmm. happens in in public in real time. Again, there are a lot of critiques you can make of the media, but this idea of like deliberate political deception, it's just not it.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny. I have a number of family members who would qualify as inherently distrustful of the corporate press mm-hmm. and they will go to alternative forms of media even places that sort of outlets that uh, what's the word I'm drawing a blank on the name but places like the drudge report that don't mm. do their like own aggregators uh, yeah aggregators yeah that's the word thank you okay. that aggregators and so like they'll go to like the drudge report or citizens free press or whatever to
1: all of the outlets you're supposedly avoiding so, <laughs> right. And
0: and well, either that or they're actually curating the news that you're supposed to see in a way that like, even if they're pointing to like, I know Drudge, I, I know he used to point to Breitbart a lot. But like what I'm, my experience is that he posts to a lot of fairly mainstream places, but he rewrites the headlines so that you want, you know, it's a little bit clickbaity or a lot clickbaity. Yeah. But it's almost like there's, an implicit bias that's affecting things more so than like we believe that journalists are just shady people who don't care about the truth. Like I've never, I don't sort of take that view, but I do understand that there is an inherent bias that we all carry. And sometimes people aren't quite as open about that or even aware of it. Is that something that's probably has a little more explanatory value or is there something more to that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it does. And one of the things I I talk about in my book is like, in a lot of cases, you just have journalists who, who don't know what they don't know. There was a really interesting example of this just this week where there was a video from a Trump rally where basically at the end, he's doing just, it's an altar call. Like, have you seen this video? He's talking in like the slow voice over music. It's an altar call, like change out the words and it's so recognizable. And the people in the audience responded to that with raised hands like in a worship setting generally with one finger pointing up the way that you'll sometimes see it church people will do like especially if there's a song about like they're being just one god or god being like the primary thing in your life people will raise hands and point one finger upward right i'm sure you've mm-hmm. seen that yeah and there were journalists who were posting about it and were like this strange new hand signal has popped up at a trump rally what does it mean No one knows what this means. No one knows where it came from. And like, they're not lying. Like they're not trying to misinform anybody. They just haven't been to church. Like they just don't know what that is. (laughs) Right. So, you know, like, I think I posted something on Twitter, like I'm begging national media outlets to hire one person who's been to church. Because that's, you know, religion is a kind of a sort of big thing in this country. And you would be, it would behoove a national media outlet to have someone who's going to recognize that sort of thing and be able to explain it for their readers. And so that's, you know, like that kind of thing is something that shouldn't happen. And ideally you would have media outlets making better hires, more culturally diverse hires. So that that's sort of, what is this? At least you could have someone who could say, hey, maybe it's, they feel like they're in church. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, part of the reason, you know, and I can't speak to that specific case, obviously, right? To the specific journalists who were who were tweeting, like, what is this new scary new hand motion? But there are like real and much more practical pressures on in the industry which lead to like job cuts and the fact that Many outlets can't afford to have reporters on beats anymore. And the reason you used to have reporters on beats was that you could have people develop subject matter expertise. And you could have, for example, a reporter on a religion beat who, even if they were not Christians themselves, they'd be like, oh, I know what that is. It's difficult because everyone in many outlets, everyone is a generalist now and expected to crank out a whole bunch of real clicky articles all day long, every day. There's not time for deeper research. And so instead mm. of like finding out what that hand motion might be, you go to print saying, we don't know what this is. And in this regard, on this more practical side of things, now the way that the media has responded to these practical pressures, you know, in most cases, that's going to be, if it's a bad response, in most cases, that's going to be a, a, something that the media deserves the blame for. But the practical pressures are something to which sort of the average news consumer, has contributed. Because every time we click on some clickbait sensationalized headline, that tells the press, this is what people want. Write more of this. This is what will pay your bills. Every time we jump a paywall and refuse to pay for better journalism, that says, people don't value this. Go write some clickbait instead. Mm, And so, I mean, even with something like Drudge, right? Like, On the media side of things, when Drudge writes a sensationalized headline and slaps it on top of your story and sends you a deluge of traffic, because Drudge can still do that. Drudge can change a whole day for you. When Drudge slaps on a sensationalized headline and sends a deluge of traffic, what that says to you as a journalist is, this is how we... (laughs) you know, I should spice up the story myself next time and send it to Drudge Mm -hmm. with a spicy headline already written for him, right? (laughs) Like, if people are not willing to pay for, pay for good journalism, they're not going to get more journalism. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse.
0: Yeah, you know, it's sometimes we've all noticed that headlines don't always, aren't always accurate. And we understand that like, you know, if you write an article, you're not the person who is actually making the headlines because you Mm -hmm. have other people making that decision. Is headline, I want to use the word misinformation, but headline diversion or just like the nature that you just described that like headlines are meant to be clicked on, is that part of the problem at all? Because I feel like there's a lot of headlines. I mean, other than when I read the Babylon Bee, which clearly is satire, (laughs) other than when I read that, it's like, wow, this really is not about what the headline said it was about. (laughs) But you, you get that information only because you're interested in it and you make it to the last paragraph.
1: Right. I mean, some of that is probably innocent, like just the inherent difficulty of capturing the gist of a story in a short, interesting way. But, Uh you know, some of it goes back to like people not knowing what they don't know. An example I have in, in the book was there was a headline about shortly after the burning of the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and it was tourist mecca. Notre Dame also revered as place of worship. (laughs) Um, It's like (laughs) metaphor from the wrong religion. It was a place of worship before tourism existed. Lots of problems, right? Undoubtedly not written by the writers, probably written by, if I had to guess, like a young, early career editor who was on a lot of deadlines and, you know, wanted to get something out that sounded interesting, right? But a lot of, I think, where you get that kind of sensationalized headline on what is otherwise a, you know, a pretty fine piece of reporting. A lot of that is just like the sheer competition of there is so much content out there. And this is... Part of this is that as the internet obviously has allowed a real proliferation of media outlets. So the mainstream guys have a lot more competition now. And in some ways, that's a really good thing. But in other ways, it means number one, that you have... Outlets that are coming up that don't have even the basic like accountability procedures of like under what circumstances do we issue a correction that mm-hmm. the big long-standing guys, you know, maybe they don't always do it well, but they do have those policies in place. And then the other thing is just the sheer quantity. You know, it was very, very different. If you were the only newspaper in town and you're reporting on what happened at the local school board meeting or whatever, there's no competition. So you just write. Your boring factual headline. You don't have to like (laughs) fight someone, right? For those eyeballs. If someone wants to know what happened to the school board, they're going to come to you. Maybe you have one other paper, right, that you're competing with. Like that's just not the same as the situation now where there's literally unlimited content and people are trying to somehow make their headline stand out.
0: Yeah. So let's shift the conversation a little bit because I want to talk about the skepticism and the death of expertise especially during covid i think this became particularly highlighted because you have people who will call attention to the mistakes or to the maybe genuine misleading you know data analysis by the quote unquote experts yet the people who want to defend the experts are like well yeah but you're not an epidemiologist or uh-huh. you're not an economist or you're not a you're not a whatever and so this whole idea of democratized knowledge where you and I, Bonnie, have access to, if we wanted to, now again, it wouldn't give us the expert knowledge, but if you and I wanted to, we could spend, and we did in, in March of, or April of 2020, have lots of time to research all kinds of things, right? <laughs> um, we, we had tons of time. I mean, some of us dealt with families and, you know, we, we chose to be outside because, you know, why not? But, you know, we can be sort of armchair Maybe not experts, but like prosumer consumers, if you will. So, what is this death of expertise and what do you see as part of the phenomenon?
1: Yeah. So, that phrase death of expertise is stolen from a book by the same name by a guy named Tom Nichols. And basically, what he argues is that we've had this real like loss of confidence in and respect for experts as a society. And so he says it's more than a natural skepticism toward experts, but the death of the ideal of expertise itself. Mm-hmm. In his phrase, a Google fueled Wikipedia-based blog sudden collapse of any division between professionals and lay people, students and teachers, knowers and wonderers. In other words, those of any achievement in an area and those with none at all. That book came out before the pandemic, if I recall correctly. It was at least certainly written before the pandemic. And we are coming to this in a different place after that because you have so many examples, you know, of people, experts, even openly admitting, "I told a noble lie about this." Uh, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, Anthony Fauci admitted that I want to say on more than one occasion about different things. He just straight up yeah. came out and said, "I changed what I said according to what I thought the public was willing to hear." And of course, there were also so many examples of, especially like. Mayors and governors who would issue some order, and then go do the thing that they had banned, (laughs) and so yeah, I very much understand that it's a hard time to trust experts, and especially experts in that sort of like elite academic sense. The problem is that the society that we live in it doesn't function without expertise. We we have to have a degree of trust and expertise because every day, you know, and this I think should be a pretty intelligible point for libertarians, understanding like the way that the market works, the way that we hand things off to people who have knowledge that we don't have and we trust them and buy things from them. But even, you know, so like every time you go to the restaurant, to a degree, you are trusting in the expertise of the people in the kitchen that they're not going to serve you rotten Mm -hmm. food, that they know what they're doing. Every time you drive across a bridge, you're trusting in the expertise of the people who built that and designed that. And so... We have this in some ways justified very deep distrust of experts now, but we've made ourselves a society in which we can't get along without experts. And this idea that I'm going to go, like Google and figure out how to do everything that experts would normally do in my life, not only is it incredibly inefficient, right? But it's just not realistic. We have to figure out a way to trust in expertise. When it's deserved, and also on the expert side of things to wield that authority in a right way, which is to say, mostly not how we've seen it in the past few years.
0: I used to have a boss at a previous job who was kind of the person who everybody went to if they had some sort of like ailment that. they had to deal with there while they were at work and didn't know what to do. And she would say, well, I'm not a doctor, but I have my WebMD. <laughs> and I don't know if that, I don't, she probably didn't originate that, but it was where I heard it first. And, and she said it tongue in cheek. And she was a trustworthy person on a, on a very practical level in terms of like, well, so, yeah, you should go see a doctor or, oh, no, just take Advil or whatever, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so there's a lot of people who are capable and smart. And I would even say that they're highly educated, maybe in a, an adjacent field. Maybe they're a doctor, but not an epidemiologist. Or maybe they're uh, an economist, but not a historian, or vice versa. And I often worry that because there are sometimes entrenched experts who have a political bias or who have a particular agenda even, or even their job is to have an agenda because they work for the government and they need to say, hey, let's stop a pandemic or let's make sure that we you know, get a lot of people vaccinated or whatever it might be, that they have a different set of incentives than just discovering the truth. And so I don't trust my... I'm making up an uncle that just Googles and learns more <laughs> about Anthony Fauci. I don't trust that person. But I might trust a person who has, is fairly credentialed, has a really good BS detector, and can explain to me why an expert, and I'll say the word entrenched expert, is wrong. And so how do you handle this sort of competing information. For somebody like me, I'm not a scientist. I'm not somebody who even sort of thinks in that way. And so when when I, you know, it gets into the weeds really fast for someone like me, when they try to explain why the epidemiologist paid for by the NIH saying X, well, he's wrong about these things. And so you need to take with caution what he's saying at some point i get into the weeds i'm like i don't even understand what i'm reading here how do i go about trusting so i guess the yeah. question for you here is how do non experts proceed with all of this
1: there's not a single easy answer i think you know some of the things you mentioned in terms of real specific cases where you're trying to parse is this specific person someone who i should be trusting to speak on this issue what you mentioned about like people who are experts but then speaking outside their expertise like that's a big problem right now, right? And it's something that social media encourages because you get a you get a social media following for your legitimate expertise. And then you start sort of just gradually drifting into commenting on things that are maybe f- at first kind of close and then farther and farther until you're suddenly you're a quote unquote expert in things that are outside your actual expertise. So I think that's a <laughs> good good principles to notice. And I would say that when we're talking about the government, thinking about like public health officials, this was something that was probably a, a major cause of a lot of our pandemic era unhappiness, which was that we had people who were legitimate public health experts, but frequently the model was not, they're gonna offer their insight and expertise and advice to the elected like officials who are actually like legally empowered to make decisions. In many cases, it was just sort of like the reins were handed over to the public health people who they have expertise in public health, but their expertise is not governance and they weren't elected for governance. And so that seems to me as like a a case where it's like that creep of expertise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More broadly, I would say, well, this isn't a very fun example, but I think in a lot of cases, we would do well to like suspend judgment for a little bit insofar as we can. and be willing to let experts be fallible and to adjust what they say as they learn more. And that's not the same as them coming out and saying, well, I lied about this because I didn't think you were ready for the full truth. Like they should be telling us the full truth, right? But the way that science is supposed to work is that you learn more and you correct yourself. And so I think that there is assuming, and I understand we can't always assume this, but assuming like honesty on the expert side. On the non-expert side, I do think we have to be willing to hold things a little bit lightly, particularly now that we might see those corrections and that expansion of knowledge in real time. And that was some of what we saw during the pandemic was obviously like the noble lie nonsense. But some of it was, oh, we really did learn more. And that's why the recommendation is changing. And there was no grace for that idea of we made a mistake because we didn't understand as much now we understand more we're correcting that mistake i think there has to be a willingness to let experts correct themselves and to if if we are too demanding and too unwilling to let there be that degree of solidarity that is only going to encourage more lying because they don't want to you know if they feel like they can't make a correction then they're going to try to get it right the first time. And if they're working with incomplete information, then the first time is probably going to be pretty wrong.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting phenomenon. Wow, we could like dive into a whole host of issues here. I have one more thing, if you have the time I want to talk about, if that's okay with you. Why do we love conspiracies so much?
1: (laughs) Uh, we as libertarians, it's because of deep distrust of the government. Um. What what
0: about also as Christians? Because you you also write about, and you and I grew up in a very similar vibe of Christianity, the whole like late great planet Earth stuff. So I think, you know, you probably have a similar experience that I did with that eschatology. And so libertarians and Christians kind of are primed to be somewhat sympathetic to something that looks like a conspiracy theory. So why is this?
1: Yeah. So for libertarians, I think it's pretty obvious. Just sort of that very deep skepticism of authority and of misuse of aggregated power. For Christians, I think there's a couple things. One is a lot of conspiracy theories, you know, are built on the idea that there's this big plan for the world. Sometimes that's a positive plan of, you know, you see this with QAnon circles of like Donald Trump has this plan to save our country and he's working behind the scenes to stop all the pedophiles. And, you know, more often it's a a negative plan. There's this plot behind the scenes to ruin everything. But that idea of a plan for the world, I think makes a plan with invisible elements and maybe even spiritual elements that fits pretty easily into how Christians think about the world. And so, you know, that's not to, (laughs) that doesn't mean that it doesn't sort of like taint Christianity. It doesn't prove that Christianity is wrong, but I think we do want to recognize that there are ways in which conspiracist thinking, we might be more prone to that than the average person. The other thing that's a little bit more specific to our context is that the people who were our parents, the people who have been leading our churches, especially in like evangelical context for the past 20, 30 years, boomers, basically, came of age in the 1970s when there were a lot of congressional committees exposing like real conspiracies that happened in the government. And that was also the decade when the late great planet Earth was like the bestseller. And if you're not familiar with that book, it's it like an end times. Basically, it taught Christians to look at things in the headlines and sort of plop them into scripture. and And so, you know, like the Antichrist is this guy and and Russia is playing this role in the book of Revelation. I think even if people are not, you know, big fans of that book anymore, it was so influential and the milieu in which it was popular that that broader mindset of looking for evidence of God's plan for the end of the world in each day's headlines, that promoted a mindset of trying to figure out these secret pieces and that, too, is a mindset that makes a lot of sense for conspiracy theorizing. And so I think for, for that generation who came of age during that time, and then also for everyone that they've been teaching and raising since. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it, it creates a special openness, I think, to viewing the world that way.
0: So one thing that I've noticed in the past, I don't know, probably the last couple of years in particular, maybe it existed prior to that, is that you will find headlines designed to use the term conspiracy theory to sort of discredit something before it's actually even able to be vetted. Because it's like, oh, well, if we could just call these people conspiracy theorists, then what will happen is people will just sort of write off the people themselves and they'll write off their ideas. And you can sort of see this in the debate over whether or not there is... There are groomers happening in certain schools because they want to teach younger children sex education. And, you know, you have a lot of people sort of using that terminology. And I have seen articles saying that, oh, well, this is just a conspiracy theory that says that there's this big, you know, whatever. And so to call somebody a conspiracy theorist or to call, you know, a particular thing, it seems more of an epithet in many ways, more so than it is like an actual description of like what's actually happening. Because, you know, as you said, there's sometimes things actually end up being true. And it's probably not the majority. But have you noticed this in journalism? Like, it just seems, maybe it's just something that I've noticed because I'm very much aware of, you know, a particular topic, the one I just mentioned, being sort of represented and and also misrepresented in the news.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it does happen. I don't know if I would say that it's quite as common as you think. But in fairness, you know, I also I'm not a a big conspiracy theorizer myself. I I think that they um like have you met people? They're not that smart. They're not that sneaky. They're not that secretive. Somebody would break and sell their story and like profit off it personally. Like conspiracies are often, when they do happen, and they do sometimes, but when they happen, they're often found out because people can't hold it together. Yeah. They just can't. That's not how people are. So I think that Americans are very suspicious. And in some ways, that's a good thing. It's good to be suspicious of concentrated authority. But we live with such, I think, there's, it's a boy who cried wolf situation, which we live with such a constant flow of conspiracy theories that, I think you're right that it has become to call someone a conspiracy theorist has become a way to dismiss them. And part of the reason for that is that there's constantly a new one. Like it used to be you would see it on like the National Enquirer at the grocery store about like Hillary Clinton is raising that boy. But now it's just (laughs) everything all the time. And so I think you're right that sometimes in journalism, people are, you know, using the phrase to just preemptively dismiss claims that people are making. And and in some cases, they may be doing that before it's been properly investigated, before those claims have actually been disproven. And, you know, I agree that is not how what people can be doing as journalists. I also think, though, you know, I, I understand the impatience with so many conspiracy theories all the time because I feel that impatience myself sometimes.
0: Yeah, well, when people don't get enough information to connect the dots. They're going to make their own connections. And I think our proclivity is such that we need an explanation for things that we don't understand or that are, especially when we're trying to be told what to do, like stay inside for two weeks or something like that. And it compounds because we have that inherent skepticism in the U.S. And it compounds because we have that distrust in the media, distrust in government, and it's just part of our DNA. And at the same time, we also want an explanation that we in some ways don't end up accepting.
1: <laughs> so yeah. We're
0: like, you know, it's like a double-edged sword or it just comes back around. It's like, yeah, there's a no-win in some sense because of the way that the American mindset is. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, like completely true that people in government and the media should be better about trusting the public with like the full information. And I'm especially thinking of the government in this regard. <laughs> we should be treated as adults and given information to decide for ourselves. On the other hand, as you said, there's no guarantee that you could put that information out there and people will still just decline to believe it and come up with Mm -hmm. their own explanation.
0: Yeah. Well, Bonnie, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this. For our listeners, we did not get to talk about cancel culture, social media, fake news, identity difference, and all kinds of things. (laughs) that, um, And including what I think is might be the more important element, because there's a lot of agreement here in terms of like understanding what the problem is. Now you define it better, you explain some of the reasons why people are sort of either tempted by this or have bad habits. But one of the better parts of the book is near the end where you're talking about like what are ways to actively form habits that are better for discipleship as an individual and in terms of if you're shepherding other people. So I would encourage listeners to get your book. So where can they find it?
1: Well, it comes out on October 11th. So depending on exactly when this will come out, it may or may not be available quite yet. But it should be available anywhere books are sold. If you order... In the pre-order period, so before October 11th, if you order directly from my publisher, which is Brazos Press, and they're an imprint of Baker Books, if you buy directly from Baker, you can get it for $10 off in free shipping. And I've heard that Amazon is having some trouble getting new releases out to folks on time. So in terms of timeliness, that would be another advantage of buying straight from Baker. And that should arrive to you on October 11th.
0: Excellent. So. We can link to that pre order link in the show notes. So, well, Bonnie, thank you for joining me for this. I really enjoyed your book, and I know our listeners will too.
1: Thank you so much. It was a great conversation.